To Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, July 30th, 2017. My name is James Marino. In the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia, Michael Portantier, and Jenna Tessa Fox. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Jenna Tessa Fox. Jenna is a theater writer and reviewer whose, whose articles have appeared at Time Out New York, Playbill, Broadway World, and New York Theater Guide. Good morning, Jessa. Good morning, Jenna. Good morning. I'm, I'm Jessa now. Okay, I like Jessa. that name. <laughs> I'm, it's a I'm, name. I'm I merged. I merged Jenna and Tessa together. Well. It actually ha- it actually happened a few times, so you're not the first. Don't worry. It's a good nickname. <laughs> well, thanks for coming back. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist whose work appears at Talk and Broadway, Everything Sondheim, and Broadway Stars. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Cinco Paul is with us. Cinco is the uh, wrote the lyrics, the music, and the book for Bubble Boy, which is a musical based upon uh, an original film, which starred a young Jake Gyllenhaal, and we'll get to that. But uh, Cinco, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking about us, uh, talking with us about the new um, the new release. <laughs> don't talk about us. Yeah, oh. don't talk about us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got a lot of dirt to dish on you guys. Excellent. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Well, tell us about Bubble Boy and in uh, the incarnations of how it how it it moved from being a film that you uh, also had a hand in uh, writing it uh, to becoming uh, a musical. Yeah, Ken, Ken Dario is my writing partner. He and I, the first movie we wrote that got made was bubble boy back in 2001 and as i've said before it was a massive critical and commercial failure (laughs) in every way and um it was vilified by the critics nobody came to see it but (laughs) there was we uh we kind of we had a soft place in our hearts for this movie and it didn't actually turn out the way uh, we wanted to. It may surprise you that screenwriters don't have that much control <laughs> in Hollywood. I'm and, shocked. Um, yeah, shocking. And so uh, there was one point my my daughter was really getting into musical theater and doing musicals, and I'd al- always loved musicals and kind of written songs. And so I found out in the Writers Guild deal that if a studio doesn't do a theatrical production of your movie, the rights revert back to you. Oh. And I thought, huh, 
maybe I could turn Bubble Boy into a musical. And that's sort of when that idea came. That was about 10 years ago, I think. And so I immediately start, went to work on doing that and started writing some songs. And, and then we did a little production in my hometown with high school kids and, and that went really well. And then the, the, big, the big step for it was when I applied to this ASCAP musical theater program, this workshop that Stephen Schwartz runs, and we got accepted. And then really Stephen took us under his wing and um, really liked the show and responded to it. And, and I really owe a lot to him and to Michael Kirker and ASCAP that got us here where we finally have an actual cast recording. Well, there are so many, of course, especially lately, many, many stage musical adaptations of films. But I, I guess you're in a quite, quite a select group in terms of the person who wrote the, the film uh, actually writing the musical. I, I guess another recent example is Groundhog Day, right? But in that case, that person did not write the score of the musical. Yeah, when we were uh, – I found out that actually – I needed Disney's permission to do this. Uh, oh. They were the ones who released the original movie, Bubble Boy. And we went to them and they said, under no conditions will we let the screenwriter adapt their own movie into a musical. It just doesn't happen. But then fortunately we had Stephen Schwartz on our side and he was our guardian angel and he intervened a little bit and got Disney to give us the go ahead. But it is a very rare thing, especially to let, Mm. You know, the screenwriters write the songs. Right. Um, but that was I. That was my main reason for doing it. I wanted to, to stretch that creative muscle and get back to music, which I'd sort of set aside to do all this screenwriting stuff. Well, fortunately, Stephen Schwartz had worked, worked for Disney before, so I guess that didn't hurt. <laughs> that's what helped. No, that's what helped. The Pocahontas and Hunchback of it all, yeah. <laughs> you know, you can point to Mel Brooks and the producers, although the subsequent Mel Brooks musicals have not scored, fared as well. Right, yeah. Although, you know, I am no Mel Brooks, so I don't have, <laughs> I didn't have that weight. Yeah. And also, the producers was not a Disney movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <That's> yeah. <laughs> Cinco, have you ever heard from the family of David Vetter, the original uh, Bubble Boy? I personally have never heard when our when our movie first came out in 2001 there were some protests from people who were who were upset about it using that story uh you know to, to, to as part of a comedy and uh you know it's really it's 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 interesting because our touchstone was the John Travolta movie right we 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 weren't basing this this was Sort of like, remember that cheesy John Travolta movie from the '70s? Let's do a comedy version of that. And um, but we haven't heard. Every once in a while, people have brought it up, and you know, we've tried to to let everybody you know see the show because our Bubble Boy is a hero, and he's oh, you know, uh, an inspiring character. You know, we're not we're not making fun of him or or trying to cast him in a bad light at all. 
Well, of course, I haven't seen the show, but nevertheless, I'm thinking of Bat Boy, uh, which was a show that um, we would think mm. would be um, a, a, a real hoot, um, a laugh riot, that type of thing. And very early in the show, we come to care about that boy tremendously because uh, he studies, he wants to learn everything he can. He gets frustrated with himself when he doesn't get everything right the first time. And we really bond with him in a way that we uh, don't expect to. Is that true of your Bubble Boy as well? Yeah, I mean, that's what I hear a lot from people because there's a lot of crazy, ridiculous humor in the, the show. It's it's first and foremost a comedy, but it would not work at all if people didn't feel for this bubble boy and this kid who's never been out in the world and he's getting out there in the, for the first time and he's doing it for love. So uh, a lot of people are surprised by the the emotion that they feel in the show, feeling for this kid. And, it, you know, Bat Boy is a, a good example of a musical that's, that's similar in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you are well-versed in the, in the uh, catalog of musical theater. Before we started uh, uh, recording, we talked a little bit about uh, City Center's uh, Sunday in the Park with, with Jake. And um, so <laughs> what's the... Uh, What's your background uh, in the musical theater realm, in the Broadway realm? Uh, I mean, you seem to have spent most of your career on the, on, the, on the West Coast doing such small films as Despicable Me and the Despicable Me sequel, <laughs> which my children love, and we watch it all oh. the time. So uh, tell us, you know, uh, I mean, you know, not, not many people from the West Coast make it in to see City Center Encores uh, shows. Yeah, I um, you know, I grew up. My mom really loved musicals, and so I grew up. Especially, and it's interesting that Stephen Schwartz has become kind of our guardian angel because the Pippin cast recording just got played constantly <laughs> in my house, and I I really grew up on that. And and uh, Camelot was another one that I listened to a lot growing up. But then when I was in high school, I I played piano, so I was uh, playing piano for all the shows. And so that really got me into the musical theater world. And that kind of became my plan or my, you know, my, uh, my, my group in high school. And so I just have always had a love of musical theater and always sort of wanted to, to write musicals, but it never really happened until a little later in my career. Cause of my day, I had this day job <laughs> that, that kept me busy with the minions and all that. But, um, but then I, but, but, but um, now I try to get out to New York. I'm here. I live here about three months out of the year because I'm really wanting to get more into the musical theater world. I'm working on a new musical now and, and seeing lots of, as many musicals as I can. What's the new musical you're working on? Um, it's a musical. I'm actually collaborating with this playwright named Becca Brunstetter. Oh, she's who, wonderful. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I love her. She's the best. I do she too. writes on yeah. for the show This Is Us right now. And so I'm actually, it was kind of my idea, but I'm just writing the songs. She's doing the book. It's called AD16. That's the working title. And it's Teenage Mary Magdalene Gets a Crush on Teenage Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I also want to go, go ahead. <laughs> and it's an R&B score. It's very fun. We're just in the early stages, I think we're going to do a concert version at Joe's pub in the fall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'm excited to, to sort of now try to write a second show. 
Let me ask about this about Bubble Boy. Uh, do people come up to you afterwards and make any references to Seinfeld because there was that famous Bubble Boy episode in Seinfeld? Right. <laughs> um, yeah, moops. Um, right. Yeah, it, every once in a while someone mentions it. Um, I think actually we, we had a meeting. Ken and I had a meeting with Jason Alexander at one point <laughs> after we had written, and, and, and he brought that up. But, um, yeah, we hear about, uh, and a lot of people think the musical is based on the John Travolta TV movie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we try to explain that, yeah, the, first of all, there's no way I could have written that. I think it was 10 when that came out. But, mm -hmm. but the, it, yeah, it's, it's based on the movie that nobody saw with Jake Gyllenhaal. You also have uh, an animated film of Horton Hears a Who. Did you uh, were you a big fan of Susical? And uh, did you ever talk to Aaron's and Flattery about it? No, no. But I um, I love their work. I I, uh, I think they're amazing. Ragtime is one of my favorite scores of all time. And uh, I'm just a big Seuss fan. And we were so excited to do that movie. And then we also got to do the Lorax. And that movie was actually a musical although the studio tried to hide the fact that it was a musical but it has has five songs in it and i got to write the lyrics for that so that was really fun what are some of the challenges involved in adapting your own work for the stage when you had the limitations of a screenplay now adapting that for a live performance on a stage can you talk about that yeah the first challenge was i tried to keep every single scene from the movie in the musical. Wow. And so the first, so the first, so the first, cause I didn't really know what I was doing <laughs> to be honest. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I'd read some books on how to write a musical and I had studied some musicals, but I didn't really know what I was doing. So the first version, the first production we did, I told you about with high school kids that was about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, really there was just too much in it. You know, I don't know. I imagine you don't know the original because that would be most people in the world. <laughs> but uh, there was the whole scene with the whole scene with freaks on a train, and so that was in the musical. And just everything that was in the movie, I tried to to keep, and I quickly realized that that did not work. So the biggest challenge was figuring out what to let go of in the in the movie because you're expanding, you know, for all these songs. So some things need to go. But I, I feel like I really lucked out that I chose a story that lends itself really well to musicalization. You know, you've got a main character that that the audience loves. These very passionate. Everybody in the in the show is passionate. You've got a lot of different groups of people for ensemble. You've got a group of bikers. You've got a group of cult members. So I feel pretty lucky. I kind of lucked into it that that this turned out so well. You, uh, the album just was released by uh, Shikaboom uh, a couple of days ago, um, and yeah. you've got a 32-page full-color booklet. It's really exciting to get something so complete in there. How did you get hooked up with Kurt, uh, uh, Kurt Deutsch at Shikaboom, or did Steven introduce you guys, or how did, how did it come to fruition? That was actually Michael Kirker from ASCAP, who's, who was bugging me all the time about you, you need a cast recording, you need a cast recording. And so, so I contacted Kurt and talked to him about the show and he got on board with it. So that was really exciting. And he was really helpful in this process, obviously, because he, he knows a lot about 
cast recordings and <laughs> and and shows. So so that was great, and it was just exciting that from the get go he said, "Yeah, we need to have a booklet, and all the, we'll have all the lyrics uh, from all the songs in there." And it's just it's really exciting for it's you know it's it's been a, a long journey for the show to finally have this and to have such an amazing cast on it too to to sing the songs. Uh, so uh, Alice Ripley, A.J. Holmes, uh, Richard Kind, Caroline Bowman, Matt Doyle, uh, uh, you just have qu- quite a group of people to get together uh, and and pull this off. Yeah, it's been, especially, you know, Alice, who has a Tony and uh, someone of her stature to have on the cast recording is, is amazing. And And she's actually been a fan of the show for a while. She was she was going to be in a production we had, and then she had a conflict, so she couldn't do it. But um, so it's so great for Alice to, to come on board. And Richard Kind is is a friend of Kurt's, and he's my neighbor here in my, my place. I have in the Upper West Side. I keep running into him all the time. So it was really fun to have him. And uh, Matt plays this wannabe rocker guy, and and he's got some pipes, Matt Doyle. Mm, and yeah. He really he, he really rocks on these songs. And then AJ uh, is from my hometown, Agora Hills, California. And the very first reading I ever did of this show was in my living room with AJ as Jimmy. Wow. So then he went on this big journey where he's been with the Book of Mormon, you know, on tour on Broadway. He just got back from Australia um, as Elder Cunningham. And for him to be able to come back and do the show is really kind of a special treat for, for me. Now, just to clarify, you did <clears throat> a concert version of the show at Feinstein's 54 Below. Is this the same cast and or is it a live recording? It's not a live recording, but it is the same cast. Ah, and thank that you. was that, that was yeah, that was an idea that, that Kurt had, which was he wanted to give all the actors the feel of performing it live you know, in front of an audience before Mm. we did the recording session, which is a great idea. So they could, you know, get a feel for that. And so we had a very intense rehearsal schedule because, you know, most shows that do cast recordings, they've done the show, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times before they come into the studio. And our situation was different. We had one performance at 54 Below, right. and so it was, it was pretty intense, but everybody really stepped up and, and did a great job. All right. Well, Cinco, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us about the uh, Bubble Boy cast recording, which is now available through Ghostlight Records. Uh, Ghostlight Records is now uh, – Kurt has rolled that into a, a, a much larger <laughs> – a much larger record yeah. level now, hasn't he? <laughs> Yes, um, yeah. So um, we will have links to that in the show notes, and you'll be able to get over to Ghostlight Records and pick up a, a cash recording uh, for yourself. Thank you so much for joining us on a Sunday morning. And, you know, when uh, your next show with Becca uh, comes together, please let us know. We'll have you back on. We'll both talk to you both about that then. Oh, great. Thanks so much. I'd love to do that. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me this morning. Are you insane? Didn't I explain you to rain? He's a boy in a bubble. A ransom note. Is there a ransom note? They need a ransom note. Sorry, just clearing my throat. What is your name? Lucretia. How is that a name? May I please speak to someone with a normal name? This is not a game. Cross me, you'll rue it. Hello, Morton. Never mind, I'll do it. Bring back my boy.
our review section, let's uh, talk about Encores Off Center, where uh, Michael and Jenna got a chance to see the bubbly black girl, Cheser Chameleon Skin, uh, which played for two days, <laughs> July 26th and 27th. And uh, all right. Well, Jenna, why don't you start us off with Bubbly Black Girl? Uh, Bubbly Black Girl is uh, it really follows up with the Encore's mission of producing rarely seen works. This show ran off Broadway at Playwrights Horizons, I believe, uh, in I think 1999 or 2000. Uh, a while ago, uh, Kirsten Childs wrote the book, the music, the lyrics, and it's a large part based on her own life and her career. Uh, like Bubble Boy, Bubbly Black Girl starts with There Was a Girl, and it follows the life of Vivica, uh, the titular Bubbly Black Girl, mm-hmm. and how she grows up in Los Angeles during the civil rights era. And eventually makes her way to New York to become a dancer. And this is one of those stories where character development is the plot. There's no one major hurdle for a character to go on. There's no quest. It's just her growing up and growing awareness of the world. Uh, She's middle class growing up in L.A. She's cheery. She's never threatening anyone. Her neighbors even call her one of the good ones, which is... uh, that line really drives home. It's the theme of the show that uh, it's sarcastic and sardonic, but it goes after really weighty issues with a child's innocence and with a child's simplicity so that you can have characters be as blunt as saying she's one of the good ones as she's describing her life and her happy, cheerful, uh, her nature. Uh, Clint Ramos is the uh, costume designer, and for all of Act One, she wears this bubblegum pink dress, very Mm -hmm. vibrant. Everything is very colorful and cheerful, and she's trying to stay cheerful and happy while hearing on the news about four little black girls being blown up in a church in Birmingham, Alabama. And she's constantly struggling to keep this bright, cheerful mood as things, she's becoming increasingly aware of really bad things happening. And to child's credit, I like that uh, most of what she has to deal with are microaggressions. It's the small insults she has to put up with. Um, when she's growing up in L.A. taking dance classes, uh, she's, for one scene in a dance class, dreaming of getting the lead in her dance class's recital. And another student tells her uh, the lead is going to go to whoever has the lightest skin. They're never going to pick you. And she's, you know, Vivica doesn't understand this. And she explains, no, no, no. To ourselves, black is beautiful. And the other student says, what they mean is say it loud. I'm black, but proud. I'm not the blackest in the crowd. Uh, Really great line there. And again, dealing with, more microaggressions than direct attacks. Uh, By act two, uh, Vivica moves to New York. She's trying to become a dancer and she auditions for director Bob. And the moment when Josh Davis puts a cigarette in his mouth, puts a bowler hat on his head, slouches forward. The audience just lost it. It was this fantastic moment as he turns into Bob Fosse and it begins again uh, inflicting the microaggressions that she's had to deal with her entire life. Uh, tells her as she's auditioning for uh, 
a very thinly veiled Chicago doing a very thinly veiled cell block tango monologue. Hmm. Uh, tells her, uh, do another monologue and you don't even have to sound black while you do it. Or you don't even have to sound white while you do it. Uh, director Robert O'Hara keeps does a really nice job of keeping the mood uh, balanced, that it can be sarcastic, sardonic, and at the same time funny. And it gives the audience permission to laugh. And some people are laughing in recognition of the microaggressions they've had to put up with. Some people are laughing uncomfortably, realizing, oh, God, I think I've said that to someone. And... It, it's funny, it's poignant, all in its different ways. Uh, Byron Easley's choreography is fantastic. I'm, I'm assuming they only had a few days to rehearse this. I'm really amazed that they pulled off some really uh, complex choreography for several scenes. So uh, really deserves a lot of recognition for some very good choreography that uh, shows off uh, Vivica's growing skill as a dancer and also conveying character at the same time. And also Anastasia Victory's music direction. Uh, similarly, they only had a few days to rehearse this, but the music really sounded nice. The band was really great. And again, captured different sounds from the 60s to the 80s and did a very nice job conveying those different eras musically. Even if we don't know exactly what year a scene takes place in, the music gives us an idea of what range we're in. And... I'm very sorry the show only ran for two performances. I hope it can come back for a longer run. Maybe this is a show that's due for a revival. It really feels timely right now with identity politics uh, being a main topic of discussion. This is a show that's largely about identity politics and the importance of the arts and the importance of representation and recognition. So it's a very worthwhile show. I'm sorry it closed so quickly. All right, Michael, uh, what do you think about this? Well, I had missed the show at Playwrights uh, back in the day. And interesting, by the way, that the the t first two shows of the three-show uh, Encore's off-center season this season were originally produced by Playwrights Horizons, Assassins and now the Bubbly Black Girl. Uh, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm sure it's just a coincidence. The next show is really rosy, which I believe was not a playwright show. But um, I'm really glad I got to see it because, as I said, I did not see it back then. I, I've always thought um, uh, I have the album with La Chance, the original cast recording, and I've always thought that the title of this show is one of the best things about it because it really gives you an idea of the tone, um, although there is quite a, a, a bit of serious content in it. Uh, as as Jenna indicated, it's not none of it is very very heavy. It's it's all dealt with in a uh, in a, a fairly light manner for the most part and uh, without a lot of angst. Um, there's much there's a great deal of humor in the show, and I had no idea until I saw it that there were so many theatrical references. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it was that was a lot of fun too. I um whoever did the wigs uh for this production deserves a nod too because um that uh sort of helps us chart um Vivica's uh, coming into uh, more of an uh, understanding of where she stands in terms of her blackness. Initially, she's wearing a, 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 a wig that looks very straight uh, and um, 
you know, very done up. And then at, when then at, I believe she has at one point rather a large afro. And then at the end, she has a very, uh, very short uh, haircut, which I assume is probably the actual hair that uh, Kanita Miller I'm sorry, not Camille. Nikki M. James. Nikki oh. M. James is where he is, you know, has right now. Uh, and I, it was so effective as a symbol of her coming into her own. Um, but speaking of Kenita Miller, I she, <laughs> I was really glad to see her on stage again. She played uh, Miss Payne, Harriet Tubman, ancestor, secretary to Lula and Granny. There were a lot. There's lots of okay. doubling in this show. Um Lots of characters played by not that many uh, different actors. I thought it was a, a delightful production. I, I, I'm really going to have to put that album on and listen to it uh, a lot more. It's been years since I listened to it. I, I just find the score so catchy and so uh, intelligent, and the lyrics are really sweet and smart. And um, and this is an, an example where someone wrote the book music and lyrics for a show and did a really good job uh in all three areas which is not yeah. as we know not always the case so really um really a a a great achievement on Kirsten Childs's part absolutely i agree and i'm sorry i realized i forgot to mention Nikki M James and the cast who all did an amazing job and Nikki M James just keeps proving herself to be such an incredibly capable performer she can play anything uh, always wonderful to see her on stage and to see the range that she can uh, that she displays. Yes, and should mention it's really, imp- really, really important in this show that Vivica appeared to be very young at the start of the show, at least. Uh, yes. If if she doesn't, I think the whole story would not work. But uh, Nikki M. James, I actually have no idea what her actual age is, but she really comes across as a very, you know, as a young girl. And then you can see her mature throughout the show. And it's it's a really wonderful journey and metamorphosis that she undergoes. All right. So that's uh, the bubbly black girl shades her chameleon skin. And uh, not only from what you guys are saying, but what from uh, other friends who saw it. I'm, I'm really hoping that this comes back. I didn't get a chance to see it. And... Um, Hopefully, we'll, uh, we'll see this in some sort of incarnation in the future. Okay, Peter, you got a chance to see uh, TheaterWorks' uh, production of Pete the Cat. It's no relation, right? <laughs> no, uh, not that I know of. Uh, you know, uh, all those DNA tests that people have been taking have been showing up a lot of strange things. So maybe Pete and I are related. Um, I, I doubt we are, though, because he's this uh, punk rock musician uh, in a in a group uh, of three people. And uh, the problem is that there is a cat catcher who takes very seriously if you're out after bedtime. Now, bedtime may seem like a little strange thing to be dealing with with a punk rock musician but the reason is this is a show aimed for little kids uh, up about to the age of 10 uh and in fact barbara pastanak the indefatigable uh artistic director of theater works usa said that 
um, kids as young as 19 months have attended oh, wow. her shows. Now, one of the reasons um, is, of course, that they do quality work. This this company has been in business, I think, since 1961. In fact, uh, its first show, uh, The Young Abe Lincoln, received an original cast album, uh, even on Golden Records. So they've been around a long time, started by Jay Harnick, Sheldon's brother, and uh, has been doing wonderful work. And this is no exception, because this is a quality production. And the best news of all for every Everybody, especially since we hear the prices at Hamilton and Hello Dolly, uh, is that it's free. Yes, free, free at the Lucille Hotel Theater. So if your kids have never seen a live show, that's one good reason to go. But another good reason to go is because Pete the Cat is a very nice musical. It does take a few missteps, which I'll uh, go into. But by and large, it is definitely worth seeing. And the pop rock bubblegum score, uh, reminiscence of song from the 60s, is uh, really uh, um, top-notch toe-tapping music. In fact, it's it's wrong to say toe-tapping because that implies one toe. Um, I think you'll at least tap five um, while you're listening to the music. So um, I really do uh, applaud it for that reason. Uh, anyway, um, so Pete the Cat, uh, the punishment for being out too late um, is that you have to live with a family um, for a week and you have to become a house cat. That's what has to happen. So that's your punishment. Um, and as a result, Pete is not happy about this because, you know, he's a rock musician. They don't say he's into sex and drugs and rock and roll by any stretch of any imagination. But they do indicate that um, he is somebody who is a, a cat of the world. See, that's what's interesting about it. it, it we're talking about a cool cat here. See, get it? So um, – so Pete is is reluctant. Now, the family takes him in. They're the Biddles. I don't think they're the Biddles from Philadelphia because they, they seem to be a, a, a middle-class family, mother, dad, sis, and brother. The problem is that um, sis is allergic to cats. So you would think that Pete would be relegated to another home. Um, but no, um, he actually is uh, must stay in the room with the brother. Now, what I think is a little odd here is that the sister um, could get a shot for the allergy and she doesn't want to get a shot. And I thought, Oh, this is, I see where they're going. They're trying to teach little kids in the audience that if you're afraid of a shot, it's not going to be that bad, but that never comes up. And I think it should, you know, I think that would be a nice solution there. So Susan Hammond, uh, Sarah Hammond, sorry. Uh, the, um, uh, person who wrote the libretto and lyrics, I think, uh, should have dealt with that. But anyway, so, uh, so Pete's grounded, you know, for a week and, um, but he and the brother get along. You know, it, it, it takes a while to um, to have him get along, uh, but they um, they do get along. And um, what what does happen that surprises me tremendously is that um, Pete tells uh, the um, Jimmy is the kid's name. Pete says, um, "Never say no to a hug," and he hugs him. Well, I would think that some parents wouldn't like that line. They've certainly told their children not to accept a hug from adult strangers, haven't they? Uh, so I think that's a bit of a problem. Never say no to it. I think, you know, there are certain circumstances where you re- a kid should say no to a hug. So anyway, I, James, you're a parent. I've been a parent of a, a young kid. I mean, I, I would have made that uh, recommendation not yeah. to accept everyone's mm-hmm. hug. So anyway, so um, they go to school. And one of the problems is that um, Pete encourages the teacher not to teach what uh, she was planning to do that day, but 
to have an art class because Jimmy really didn't have time to study because they were fooling around in his uh, room. I don't mean anything sexually fooling around, but I mean just fooling around. So um, they have art class, and Jimmy is a terrible painter, so he copies uh, the person next to him, the artwork. And I will admit this is uh, a not as bad as copying on an algebra test or anything like that, but um, but still the teacher chides him for it. And the kid says, I'm going to get killed when I go home because the teacher says she's going to call the parents. And um, what happens is the parents um, sing a lyric saying, even when you mess up, you got mom and dad, which is a nice message. I like that. However, I think, you know, uh, Miss Hammond should have uh, made room for the parents to say, but you really shouldn't copy anybody's work. You know, that doesn't come up at all. It's just total forgiveness. Um, one of the interesting things here is that Jimmy says, um, okay, I'm going to do my own painting. It's going to be the best painting in the world. And it, it, that's very kiddish. You know, that, kids are like that. You know, they think they're going to do the best and then they get discouraged when it's not the best. And Pete helps them to realize that it doesn't have to be the best. Just do the best you can. And uh, if you put your own personality into it, um, it'll be good. So very nice cast, um, five actors uh, playing a million roles, which always brings up a question to me. I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out to the three of you. Do kids get confused with with doubling? I mean, we accept doubling, yeah. But do kids think mm. that the person comes out in the second scene is a different person from the one they saw in the first scene? Do they get that? I often wonder about that. Do you have any feelings about that, guys? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes I'm confused if it's ah. not, if it's not <laughs> to be if it's not done well. I I can, I can recall several shows recently where I even mentioned it. Uh, um. Uh, but but if it's done well, no. So I think that's the answer for maybe adults as well as kids. Wait a second. I'm sorry. I'm a little confused here. Are you saying that the Marquis de Lafayette isn't Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> Have I been watching the show wrong all these years? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> You think, I think, Jenna? That, I think mm-hmm. that the kids have a, a larger willing suspension of disbelief than adults do. Uh, oh, I'm all set there. I'm not yeah. saying that they have any problem with that. What I'm saying is when a kid goes to his first show yeah. and a person comes on in the first scene, let's say as a teacher, and then she comes back and she's um, a, a, a shopper in a store, do they say, oh, the teacher's going shopping or do they assume that it's somebody else entirely? That's my question. And I again think- – I'm not coming down on theater works, you know, yeah. I mean, after all, everybody doubles and we do the best we can and all that. I understand salaries, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just wondering if kids are confused. Well, uh, I do I, remember in, uh, in mentioning in Significant Other, there were one or two times where I was very confused and I thought one person was supposed to be the same character. So, again, I, I think it depends on how well it's done, if the person, you know, I mean, puts on glasses or a hat, uh, how long there is of a period of time between one actor appears as two different characters. I think that makes a difference. And I guess my the point. Yeah. The, the thing is, these kids grow up watching movies on TVs and TV shows where there are no doubling. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. we, by the time they go to the theater, they have seen movies on TV or movies in the theater or they've seen a million TV shows and there's no doubling. So do they get confused or do they just go with the flow? I mean, that's I, I would think they'd get confused. I, I think it's I an excellent remember. question. I've been going to theater since I could walk. My parents took me to as many shows as they could when I was growing up. I don't recall at any point asking them about doubling. I seem to recall I understood that it was a theatrical device. I was much more concerned about Bill Sykes stabbing Nancy and that it might be real than I was (laughs) with uh, multiple actors playing different roles. 
Uh, I mean, it's one of the first shows I remember seeing was Oliver. And I just remember my big concern was, was that knife real? I don't remember any concern about doubling or uh, in, anything in fact, like that. In fact, is there doubling in Oliver? Oh, no, uh, no, I don't think that was what she was saying. This oh, I know. I'm just, yeah, but, no, that, but yeah. that brings up the question. In other words, if there was no doubling in Oliver, she wouldn't have to be confused at all. <laughs> I mean, you know, True. So. Uh, very valid point. I'm just trying to think of my earliest theatrical memories. And I just remember one of the first shows I saw was Oliver. And I don't recall that being a concern. I do remember being concerned about uh, were the props real? Yeah. Well, a, um, a show, a kids show that I saw very recently that had a lot of doubling, which didn't seem to confuse anyone and was a great success. And in fact, I hear may have a further life was the lightning thief. Oh, mm-hmm. oh yeah. So, so if that's any answer to your question, Peter. Uh huh. Good. You know, uh, fine. And again, I'm I'm hoping the answer is yeah. They get it right away. You know, I mean, uh, you say put glasses on, and uh, certainly that might do the trick. It doesn't for anybody in Metropolis, apparently. But <laughs> I was just gonna say Superman. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you know, I mean. <laughs> So uh, anyway, just back to Pete the Cap, because it really is a good show, despite my little um, problems with uh, messages here and there. Uh, Wonderfully done by five actors who are so game. And I really admire uh, people who uh, do children's theater because, um, yeah, I I don't think anybody grows up saying when I grow up, I want to act in children's theater. And most people do it, of course, to get their equity cards. But I don't think that's the case here. I think all these people had them. And um, so I'm really, really impressed by uh, that and um, so my my ultimate message is even if your sons and daughters are younger than the School of Rock musical you know, don't be afraid to bring them to Lortel for this uh, free show that's uh, we're worth substantially more than just free one last comment you were, you were going on about that part where the, the kid says he's going to paint the best painting ever and you said you know how that's such a kiddish thing to say mm-hmm. but I was thinking it also sounds like Donald Trump <laughs> it's the hugest, best painting ever. <laughs> Which honestly says quite a lot about the president. Oh, dear. Yes. <laughs> Kiddish in a, in a bad way. All right. So uh, TheaterWorks USA is doing this in their free summer theater season of 2017 through August 18th down at the Lortel, as Peter was mentioning. It's also in conjunction with the L- Lucy Lortel Foundation. So um, that's great. And I'm glad that you brought it up that uh, TheaterWorks is a place where a lot of people do get their equity cards. You'd be amazed if you dug back in many a Broadway cast and saw uh, one of the first uh, uh, professional jobs that many people have is through TheaterWorks. TheaterWorks has issued uh, equity contracts to people for children's theater and tours and things like that for many, many years. And it's, it's one of the ways that a lot of actors get into the union, which is great. All right. So um, there wasn't much going on this week, was there, until, you know, Uh. Wednesday or Thursday (laughs) or something like that? (laughs) I mean, my God, who would have thought Rance Priebus was going into (laughs) Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812? Now he isn't. Oh, Reince. Could happen. Uh, Reince and Sean Spicer are going to do Sideshow together. um, Oh, my God. So uh, we're talking about uh, The Great Comet, um, where uh, Okarita and Adawan uh, is playing the Pierre role, 
and there was an announcement that Mandy Patinkin was going to take over that role and cut Oak's um, run a little bit short. And uh, it was surprising at first, and I think I I was a little bit overwhelmed with, oh, my God, Mandy's coming back to Broadway to even think about that they Mm. had slighted Oak and uh, that my focus was on that's great. Mandy's coming back. Why is it only three weeks and what's going on? And then there was a big pushback on, you know, uh, how uh, Okarite Anadawan was uh, slighted by this and what was the real reason, what was going on. So let me get your your, your takes on this. Uh, Peter, you know, what's your take on, on what has happened here? Uh, I want to know if anybody saw uh, Oak in the show. And, uh, if that's really what's going on here, was he any good? Um, I am going to ask that question. So I did not, I have seen Natasha four times and I don't think I'll be going back. And there are those who would guess that if I don't go back in two weeks, I'm not going to be able to go back at all. Mm. So, um, it's always, you know, I, I, I find as I get older and who doesn't, um, I agree more with Tevya, you know, he's right. He's right. You're right too. Um, you know, I see both sides of the story and, uh, I was surprised that, um, Mr. Potenkin dropped out. But uh, I'm not chiding him for doing so, and I understand why he would really endure some sort of firestorm. I would hate to be at that first performance, and if if any any enemies were there to uh, to boo him or anything like that. So uh, the only thing I feel bad about is if indeed it is true that they have no advance, as Dave Malloy alleges. Dave Malloy being the person who certainly is the power behind the writing of Natasha since he wrote everything um, and even the orchestrations um, it's really too bad that so many people are going to be thrown out of work for this controversy and um, I do see um, an expression of uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face here um, in in some degree and so I really feel bad that uh, if it does close not just because of the cast too because it's a wonderful show and can bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people so I'm going to be sorry to see it go if that's indeed what's happening and we may be dealing with death warrants much too quickly. I can certainly appreciate that. Uh, it's not like management has said, okay, we're closing on the 13th. It's just everybody, mm-hmm. many people are assuming that they're going to uh, because of this. And maybe the Kagans, uh, the producers, uh, are willing to say the hell with it. You know, I mean, all right, you know, that's it. You know, I, um, uh, I may have mentioned this before, I think I have, that one of the reasons curtains ran so long is because Roger Berlin said everybody got along so wonderfully. He never had to feel f- phone calls every day saying you got to do something about so-and-so because he or she is driving me crazy, that type of thing, which always happens with producers. And he said, you know, so I knew I wasn't going to make any money on it, but I mean, the point is nobody was bothering anybody, uh, was meeting expenses one week, not the next. You know, so, I mean, things like this can really um, sour a, a producer from saying, look, I mean, the show's almost been around a year. I mean, uh, we've, we've done what we could. Um, we'll go away quietly. And sometimes closing quietly, I think, is the smartest thing you can do. And I, I honestly believe it's one reason why Merrily We Roll Along has been produced endlessly. If it had run 193 performances and failed, nobody would be doing it because it would have been the show that just stuck around forever. Mm-hmm. And um, and because everybody saw it close up two weeks, everybody said, oh, I can fix it. So I think going away, if if indeed they have no advance, I think that's indeed what they should do because who are they going to ask now? Who's go- I mean, this we talked about Kevin Spacey being the 15th person to accept for the Tony Awards. I mean, how many mm-hmm. people are going to go through who's going to say, no, I don't want to be any part of this controversy? So um, it's a sad situation. 
situation. It's really too bad it worked out the way it did. But if anybody saw Oak in the show, I would love to be emailed on this and let me know what you thought of it. I won't necessarily um, make any statements in the future about how many people voted yes, how many people voted no, and whether he was good or bad or anything like that. But uh, I would be interested. So, um, but what a shame, huh? Yeah. Uh, Michael, what do you think? Yeah, um, well, one thing that normally I wouldn't really care so much, but I, I still I really do wonder what exactly was the cause of Oaks starting a week later than he was supposed to. I believe he uh, tweeted or something, uh, something to the effect that the show wasn't ready for me. And the only thing that I can interpret from that is that maybe he hadn't had a put in rehearsal. Do we think that that's what happened? <laughs> uh, there, uh, Matt and I talked about it on today on Broadway a lot. Oh, um, okay. And there wasn't any official reason that we were given by press reps or anybody else about um, why he started a week late. The there's only a rumor around that he was having challenges with playing the accordion, uh, and but we don't know if that's true or not. Uh, but that was what was going around the message boards at Broadway World. Um, ah that uh, he was having challenges. And as much as we despise the messages at Broadway World at times, they're generally <laughs> right. Well, I suppose that, you know, that could certainly be true. He did have a lot of notice, a lot, a lot of notice that he was going into yeah. this show. So that's why I would tend to think that might yeah. not be right. But I was just wondering if it, it had any bearing on what happened subsequently. It, it may have nothing to do with it. They may be totally unrelated. Also, it's it's difficult to discuss this because from the beginning, there have been so many things about this show that didn't make sense to me, um, if, if, including beginning with the major renovation of the theater, uh, which I thought to myself from day one, well, that has to cost a tremendous amount of money on top of the normal production expenses. So how much is that going to add to their budget and how much is that going to delay their recoupment? Uh, so that's that was the first thing. Then, of course, there was the whole controversy with Ars Nova and not giving them the credit that they were uh, – apparently contractually entitled to. Uh, the producer didn't want to give them the, the credit they were entitled to, and then he caved on that. Then there was the whole thing with the cast album, which for reasons I still do not understand, was the release of it was delayed for months, uh, even while Josh Groban was still in the cast. And also, I uh, although I'm the only one who seems to remember this i swear to god i saw a previous uh, a previous idea um for the cover art for the cd the, the cast album that had photos of the two leads and their names prominently featured which the which the ultimate uh art that they wound up having does not have so it seems like oh and then there were the commercials there were the tv commercials for the show that ran all during josh groban's run in it that had did not 
have an image of Josh Groban nor mention his name. So it seems that in a very strange way that even while having this huge box office draw in the show, the producers were trying to make it not about him uh, with the obvious um, goal of having the show continue after he left. But I, while I understand the uh, impulse, I don't, I, it seems that it was done very, very, very poorly. And I, and, and obviously didn't work um, because what we're told is that uh, without a star in it, whether it be Josh Groban or Ingrid Michelson, th- there seems to be no box office for the show. Well, you know, this the, the original cast album thing brings up a very good point because mm. I remember Brian Drutman, when he was running uh, the original cast division uh, at Universal Records, told me if Susical had run on Broadway one more week that mm-hmm. album would have paid off because so many people buy the album at the theater yes and certainly you know i mean <laughs> there are your sales i mean they, they're seeing josh they come out they they buy it right then and there so that was a really big missed opportunity yes yeah i remember robbie roselle tweeted something to the effect of uh, somewhere david shiner is sipping on a bourbon and smiling wistfully <laughs> as all this blew up and we know that the bu- at least the bulk of the recording was made in before Christmas, because they're part of the issue was that um, well, there was the dispute and then Josh Groban, uh, the, the dates were switched. Now he wouldn't be able to attend the Ars Nova Gala and blah, blah, blah. So we know when the sessions were taking place and it just doesn't I, you know, I mean, you would think it would be relatively easy to find out why that album was so delayed in its release. But I haven't had anyone been, been able to tell me. Mm. Uh, Jenna, what do you think about this this uh, story? Uh, not much more to add from what the guys have said. Um, I love the show. I'm very sorry to hear it struggling. Uh, looking at Dave Malloy's tweets and reading his version of the events, uh, his comment that it's apparently a weird show, turns out it needs a name to sell it, is frankly rather heartbreaking because it <laughs> is such a beautifully written show. I would love to think it could work without names like Ingrid Michaelson, without names like Josh Groban. I'd love to see it thrive on its own merits. I would love to see this become a staple of regional theaters and high schools. High schools need new visions of the classics in order to get kids interested in reading those classics. I'd love to think there's a whole generation of people running to get copies of War and Peace because they enjoyed Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. So... It's really heartbreaking just to think that, mm. A, the show is not selling on its own merits. I thought I thought it did a beautiful presentation on the Tony Awards. I was mm. hoping that would get people excited. Um, and on, that, also, on that note, yes. you know, we can't go back in time and do things differently and see if they would have turned out better. But who knows? Maybe if there had been no star in it from the beginning mm-hmm. – uh, then it would have been easier to sell the show on the show's merit in the way that um, <laughs> when Dear Evan the English Hall, musical, the English well, musicals too. I mean, yeah, you know, the show I mean, is the star. Absolutely, right. the, uh, yes. uh, Forbidden Broadway. You know, but also Ben Platt was not a star when Dear Evan Hansen opened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. To say so, the least. To so, say the least. yeah. So it's uh, who knows. I mean, I who knows. <laughs> Who knows? And I wonder if this is something to do with, you know, celebrity culture and people believing that they need a star. I'm very interested that the producers did not focus on Groban in a lot of their advertising. 
and that they did not uh, emphasize celebrity as part of their marketing campaign. Um, but and yet audience... people seem to have found out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't really think that we need to focus on Oak's performance. I think that we need to focus on the, the lack of the lack of ticket sales. Because yeah. that's yeah. what you know. Dave Malloy tweeted out a number of things yes. uh, about this, um, and they were talking. Dave is talking about uh, the lack of ticket sales in the future. Not right. you know, not right now. Right now, they're still in the million dollar club. Uh, he says that the ticket sales plummet after Ingrid leaves the uh, uh, leaves the show uh, in a, a couple of weeks, and that that's what they're. Yes. That's what their main concern was. Not nobody has really said, you know, that Oak's performance is an issue that, uh, that right, they're up against right. as a Good. challenge. Um, that, um, but I, I think that you know Josh Groban comes in with a built-in fan base that are going to search him out and say, you know, if Josh Groban were standing center stage reading a phone book, I'm sure we could fill the theater. <laughs> um, hmm. and, or at least singing a phone book. Yeah, they were singing. As long as Dave Malloy wrote the uh, music for the phone book, then yes, exactly. that works. Um, so I, I, I think that this is a, a producerial problem, a ticket marketing, getting butts and seats problem. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so now we have the word that – so Mandy was supposed to go in for three weeks. Okay. Well, I was going to say one thing they could have done – was to take Mandy up on his offer and then say that Oak would immediately come back and, and extend yeah. his run so that Oak would have wound up performing as as much as he was contracted to do. And the only reason I can think that they didn't do that is because they seemed to feel that they would then lose whatever they gained in Mandy's run because yeah. they seemed to feel now that if there's not a star in it, nobody wants to see the show. So... uh but my point was was that they 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 had Mandy for three weeks and seemingly he couldn't extend because he's he's his homeland shooting schedule I, his uh, television show um, the shooting schedule wouldn't allow him to extend but certainly they must have had an idea or somebody to be announced right after Mandy and after this all went down they're they're in no, no man's land right now nobody knows as Peter mentioned. If they are going to be um, still open, who's mm. going to be in the role? What's going to happen there? Will Dave Malloy go back in? I mean, Dave uh, took over uh, periodically when Josh was out. Um, we we don't know what's happening with this show, and the worst type of thing can happen is that the three of us, who are pretty much insiders on in the theater scene, ha are speculating because we have no idea <laughs> because they've not said anything. <laughs> Uh, and that's a that's a right. really bad plan from from a producerial standpoint, from a messaging standpoint, marketing and public relations. Uh, who who's going to go in? I mean, so Ingrid Michaelson's uh, boyfriend is uh, the uh, well known Broadway actor Will Chase. Um, so you know, Will uh, you know? Could you have brought Will Chase <laughs> and kept Ingrid going there? Uh, Ingrid's a pretty well known. Uh, pop uh, singer songwriter as well, uh, and uh, I I don't know what they're going to do w with this uh, situation, but it's uh, certainly they have to figure it out because uh, 
houses, away, that, <laughs> houses this size are are in demand. So if they don't mm. um, if they don't uh, make make an action soon, they're going to lose this house. And then they're going to have to pay to take all that stuff out. Yeah, right. well, they, it was built into the budget. They they yeah. have to bring the budget bring the uh, theater back to the way it was. Yes. Unless the Theater World Awards would like to keep it like that, right, Peter? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can't really talk about Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, what happened on stage, but I just wanted to uh, ask a question of the of the three of you. I saw. Which Midsum- clarify that we can't talk about it because it hasn't officially opened. It hasn't yet. officially opened, so we can't really talk about the performances on stage. But I wanted to ask you guys a question. Um, I saw it last night. And the staff of the public theater sat in the aisles. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen that before? Yeah. I, I yes. Re- I can't All recall seeing that before. I, yeah. I wasn't sure if that was a response to the Julius Caesar thing, uh, the, oh, the protests or saying. things yeah. like that. They they sat and impeded people's way up and down the aisle, which I thought was probably a fire hazard. But yeah, um, that, might, that may be. That may but, be. Um, I, I, I've thought of that before. But no, that's been going on all the time. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I didn't think I wasn't sure, but we'll talk about that. It officially opens tomorrow night, uh, and um, so we'll talk about it next week when we come to you there. So I uh, one little last thing that we're going to talk about before we wrap up for the t- for today is uh, Broadway Records put out a 2017 Tony Awards compilation. Uh, Michael, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I think I may have mentioned this in passing before, but I I wanted to be sure to mention it because I think it's a really great thing. Uh, We've seen compilations like this before, but what's so interesting about this one is that not all of the shows excerpted have their cast albums on Broadway records. Some are from other labels. So I think they did a really good thing here uh, where um, they got – you know, reciprocal arrangement and just they, they really um, uh, I, presumably the compilation is produced by it is produced by Van Dean and Carl Levin and co-produced by Robbie Roselle. So they must have really um, done a, a, an excellent job of going to the various labels and saying, you know, this is what we'd like to do and it would be good for everyone as a promotion. Uh, and because it has songs from <laughs> Natasha Pierre, Dear Evan Hansen, come from away uh i'm I'm sorry you know not just songs from but excerpts from the actual cast albums uh groundhog day the musical falsettos anastasia bandstand miss saigon and holiday inn um so i think that's really great oh and also let's see uh um also amelie charlie and the chocolate factory bronx tales sunset boulevard cats and in transit um so uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that's that's nice. Uh, I see. Well, it's whole- also what's also interesting about this, of course, is how times have changed in two ways. Mm-hmm. First off, you remember uh, that way back in 1950, when Call Me Madam opened, uh, Ethel Merman was under contract to Decca Records, and as a result, Decca Records did not want to let her out of her contract to do the cast album of Call Me Madam. So as a result, there were two albums of Call Me Madam, one with the original cast and Dinah Shore in her stead. Dinah Shore was a big star at the time, and uh, forgotten. Now, I'm sure, but uh, a big star then, believe me. And Ethel Merm did her own recording with a few studio singers and called it a day. So uh, <laughs> thank God that got solved by the time Funny Girl opened because Barbara Streisand was uh, on Columbia Records. Mm. Capital had the cast album rights for um, 
for of Pony Girl. And for years, I often wondered, um, my God, you know, Goddard Liebeson, who was so smart about cast albums, and Barbara Streisand was, was, after all, his artist, and he didn't go for the cast album. It never occurred to me that what happened is the capital invested in the show before Barbara Streisand was involved. They just mm-hmm. wanted to be part of the, the, the Fanny Bryce musical. So that's how that happened. But thank God. Columbia let her out because who would have done the cast album of Funny Girl otherwise? Nancy Wilson, Scylla Black, <laughs> Mrs. Miller. I mean, those were capital recording artists, so who knows? So that's one thing, you know, so it's nice that there's uh, everybody's playing nice with each other, but I'm sorry to say there's another reason too, and that is because um, cast albums aren't what they used to be, to say the least, and as a result, um, I don't think that these other companies feel they're losing so much money um, if this happens if they lend their uh, stuff out. And in fact, I think they live in high hopes that uh, perhaps somebody hears one song from the show and thinks it's terrific and say, wow, I I better get the whole album. So it's a sampler of sorts. Right. So uh, in keeping with uh, some other related uh, cast recording news, uh, the chorus line 40th anniversary um, recording has been released on vinyl, where they're saying 180 gram vinyl. I guess that's good. I don't know. <laughs> yes, it is too. You I know what I'm wondering? What yeah. I'm wondering is is this the original, original cast album? And what I mean is, oh, yes. So many- there have been so many permutations of Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love. And for those of us who grew up on the original, original cast album, we still have that Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love um, abridgment in our heads. And um, it's never been released on CD. What we knew was the uh, – I don't – maybe it has. All right, I'm going to take that back. Maybe it has. But I don't think so. I and think, I think, I think – I think the first one. Did it? Okay, I'll concede that. Um, but um, certainly, if one buys the cast album now, you get a different Hello 12, Hello 13, Hello Love. And if you get the Revival cast album, you get yet a different one still. And um, But for those of us who knew it uh, as it was in the first place, and to me it's one of the great miracles of all time, that that abridgment on the very first vinyl original cast album sounds so natural and as if it's the whole thing. It doesn't sound like choppy or anything like that. Um, I think that's to be released nostalgically uh, for those of us who remember it on CD. And um, so I'm going to be very curious to see if the vinyl has that permutation or any of the others. So, Peter, you talk about versions of shows and uh, versions of songs release and things like that. Um, let me introduce you to my chest, re- my chest recordings. You know, <laughs> every, every single chest recording and all the bootlegs and everything, they're all different. But uh, they said uh, this uh, 40th anniversary uh, collection features eight never-before-released demo recordings. Uh, And as I mentioned, 180-gram vinyl, which I guess is good. But uh, I'll refer you back to uh, this guy. He writes this column over at Masterworks Broadway. Uh, His name is Peter Felicia. He uh, wrote this 40 years, 40 facts for a chorus line. And one of my favorite facts here is number 15. For a while, there was no Zach, but a solid silence that would represent the questions he asked of the auditioners for which they would then answer. Oh, wow. Talk about holes in a plot. So I'll link to uh, Peter's article on Matchworks Broadway. And also uh, there is a giveaway of this – of this, uh, the 40th anniversary vinyl, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well, so y'all can uh, check that out. And if you have a turntable, it's a nice addition to your collection. In fact, if you get this, maybe you should buy a turntable then. Uh, so. 
<laughs> I want to add something here, and that is the fact that here we are saying that that was such a terrible idea, and I don't think anybody will disagree with the fact that it's a terrible idea to have silence in a show when um, somebody is supposed to be talking. But what this does prove is a few things. One, Michael Bennett was willing to try different things, and mm. two, Michael Bennett didn't always have good ideas. Nobody always has good ideas. Mm. So as a result, you know, anybody out there who starts writing something and sees that you've made a terrible mistake, don't give up. Keep going because you'll eventually uh, have the possibility of coming up with the real solution. Uh, so don't get embarrassed when you make a terrible mistake. Think of Michael Bennett's terrible mistake there and look what happened to that show. And at least another one on that same show was, isn't it true that originally Cassie was not cast in the show at the end? Oh, indeed. Oh, indeed. Marsha Mason had a lot to do with that. She was uh, uh, with Neil Simon at the time who came in to do, add a few good jokes. And um, she was the one who said it must happen. And, and she was absolutely right. I think. Oh, she Absolutely sure right. Yeah, yeah. I agree entirely. I don't know how happy Cassie would be in the chorus for so long, but maybe it would get her out of it because people say, hey, you know, look at that. And, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's show business is like that. I mean, I'll never forget seeing Lolita, my love, and seeing uh, Irwin Pearl in the chorus where a, a, a year earlier he was in Minnie's Boys playing Chico. So, uh, you know, it, it it comes and goes, you know. So um, I, I do believe that all of us need the at least opportunity to start over again if we need to and not say, that's it, I'm done. On a related note, uh, Donna McKechnie, the original Cassie, is going to be playing Mabel in a production of The Pajama Game, Game down right. at, at D.C. So uh, she's she's still around. Well, she's still and, working, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is the Stitcher app, which is an application for your iPhone, your Android device. Um, iHeartRadio plays us. Uh, Google Play plays us. Um, I, uh, TuneIn plays us. You can listen to us on your Amazon Echo. And anywhere else that you can listen to finer podcasts. Broadway World Radio plays us Wednesdays at noon, Thursdays at 7 p.m. and Saturdays at 2 p.m. Contact information for Peter, for Jenna, for Michael, for me can be found at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. All right, Peter, do we have an answer for trivia from two weeks ago? Yeah, the question was, some decades ago, he had a small role in the play Midsummer Madness, but less than a decade later, he <laughs> starred in the musical film The Fiddler and the Fighter. Who is he? Well, all right. I mean, this was a lousy question in many respects because we're not talking about somebody real, but a character in two different properties. So the answer is Byron Prong, whose name you can see on the front of house display in the 1958 film of Auntie Mame. That's what, remember, Mame is going to be in the – and she screws up the show – uh, that play is called Midsummer Madness, and they give the credits, and they sh they shoot down. You see at the end, Mame Dennis and Tiny Print. But also on that uh, window card, it does say Byron Prong. Now, Comden and Green wrote the screenplay to Auntie Mame, and uh, they also wrote the 1964 musical Fade Out, Fade In. And then they gave that same name to the character played by Jack Cassidy, who was uh, Carol Burnett's love interest in the show. So Josh Ellis was the first to get it, followed by Carrie Winslow, Jed Slaughter, Ed Glazier, and Rob. Robert Lobiondo. So congratulations to them all because uh, it's a tricky question. This one's even trickier. Oh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm ashamed of myself for giving it, but I'm going to give it anyway. 
that, and I've tried to narrow it down so to make it easier. Guys and Dolls was the first musical to open in the 50s to win a Best Musical Tony. But another 1950s Tony-winning musical actually had characters known as Guys and Dolls. Which one was it? Hmm. That's harder than you think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So if you have an answer to that, Email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you are on the right path. So on behalf of Peter Felicia, Jenna Tessa Fox, and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This isn't about the wet cake. This isn't about those things This is about our lives together Street. Cause Sean and I will be in the garage, garage While you fix us something to eat I'm taking nachos This is about our lives together Yeah.